always a pleasure and an honor uh, to be uh, part of this group and to have the opportunity to exchange uh, with so many um, people. And, uh, and I see many familiar names and faces. It's uh, very nice. And I look forward to your questions. Uh, but without further ado, I will share my screen with you and my uh, presentation of today. Um, so, is, yes, it's shared, right? Yes, okay, perfect. <laughs> so, um, in the next half an hour, 40 minutes, I would like to discuss the recognition of the right to be rescued at sea. And uh, to be honest, uh, when I was contacted a couple of months ago uh, and invited uh, for this talk, I had thought about a completely different topic. But then, uh, just a month ago, or less than, than that, uh, the Human Rights uh, Committee adopted this decision on uh, a case involving Italy and Malta concerning uh, the mis mismanagement sorry, of a certain rescue operation. And then, as well, you have uh, heard from uh, Natasha's introduction, uh, immigration and search and rescue uh, services is one of my lines of research. It's a, a theme that is very close to my heart, which goes back to my PhD thesis. And then uh, reading the, the, the decision, I thought, oh, there are so many aspects uh, concerning in particular jurisdiction and how we frame jurisdiction in the law of the sea and in human rights and more generally in international law uh, that we can actually discuss on the basis of this decision. And also, it is the first decision in which there is a clear affirmation and recognition of what can be considered a right to be uh, rescued at sea by an international body. So, for those of you uh, who uh, well, haven't had the chance uh, to read uh, the decision, I uh, copy and pasted here uh, two of the main uh, um, uh, passages, paragraphs of, of the decision. One, which is the one where the committee actually recognizes that the Italian authority were exercising jurisdiction uh, so that the individuals on the vessels uh, which were in distress, were directly affected by the decisions taken by the authorities. And on the basis of that, the committee uh, construed the jurisdictional link between the Italian authorities and the people on board of those vessels. And uh, the second part where um, the, the committee actually uh, recognizes that there is uh, a violation of the right to life uh, um, because of a failure in responding to the distress call. So here, the construction of the breach of the right to life on the basis of a conduct. So how, what is the threshold um, for the breach of uh, a due diligence obligation as is the one of render assistance. And this is a clarification uh, also uh, brought by this uh, decision. Uh, the committee adopts a very clear functional approach to jurisdiction in, uh, in this decision. Uh, so construing the effective control over the individuals on the basis of the exercise of functional powers uh, by uh, Italy, specifically in this decision. Um, 
and the function, functional dimension of jurisdiction is argued on the basis of the law of the sea, specifically of the SOLAS, the safety of life at sea, and the search and rescue convention. This approach, however, uh, was not shared by all the members of the committee, and in particular, three members of the committee highly disagreed with the functional approach uh, adopted by uh, the majority, in particular, uh, invoking a disruption of the system uh, created by uh, the two conventions, the, SOLA and the SOLAS and the SAR convention. And also, uh, yeah, invoking a sort of uh, a confusion maybe created also by this approach when international law already uh, designates which is the uh, state responsible, no? and so which is the state which has jurisdiction. Um, when I read this dissenting opinion by these eminent, uh, eminent members of the, uh, of the committee, I started thinking as well about whether, well, there was some ground there, uh, whether indeed this functional approach, if on the one hand uh, I, we see the clear added value of the recognition of the right to be uh, rescued for the individuals uh, involved in any distress instance, uh, is there indeed uh, a disadvantage for the system which was created uh, by the SOLAS and the SAR conventions? Is there really disrupting uh, what were the main objectives of the conventions? And I, that's what I want to discuss with you in uh, the coming half an hour. And my point of view, and I'll try to convince you <laughs> in the next minute, is that actually there is no disruption of uh, the legal system, the legal order created by these two conventions, and that actually uh, the recognition of a right to be rescued is, in my view, welcome, because it clarifies actually uh, some of the obligations which are in the uh, conventions, and it in particular clarifies the sharing of the burden um, of those obligations in practical situations. And in order to convince you of that, I will uh, then follow four uh, steps. Uh, one, first of all, I will introduce very briefly what is the duty to render assistance and what are the main features, characteristics of the legal order created by the SAR and the SOLAS conventions. Then I will focus on the exercise of jurisdiction in uh, SAR operations and uh, in, that in light uh, also of the decision adopted in January. And then what is the, um, how can the right to life um, be applied in uh, the SAR uh, context and uh, in which way also it influences actually the behavior of states involved in SAR operations. And then to conclude that it is a welcome outcome, <laughs> the, this decision of uh, the, the Human Rights Committee. So first of all, uh, the duty to render assistance. I know that some of you are quite familiar with it, and I apologize if uh, I <laughs> repeat things that uh, are maybe a bit boring for you, but I guess not everybody is as familiar. So um, I will just introduce very briefly the main instruments and the main obligations. 
um, Article 98 of the Law of the State Convention uh, affirms the right to uh, the duty to render assistance. And uh, you see here the drafting of Article 98, uh, where every state shall require the master of a ship flying its flag uh, to render assistance to any person found at sea in danger of being lost or to proceed with all possible speed to the rescue of person in distress if informed of their need of assistance. So here the distinction is between two um, factual situations uh, when there has been indeed a distress call and so the authorities and eventually oh, the um, merchant vessel which receives the call um, is informed of a situation of distress and then the first situation which is paragraph A when actually there was no the distress call uh, but some persons in danger are found at sea. So the obligation to, the, to render assistance applies in both situations. Uh, there is not a, a, a duty only when we receive a request, but there is a general duty to render assistance even when there is no specific request by the people in danger. This uh, obligation, uh, you will find it in the part of the Law of the Sea Convention, which regulates the high seas regime. However, uh, it is also a rule of customary international law, and it is recognized and accepted as rule of uh, customary international law, and it is considered to be applicable in all maritime zones. And this is indirectly confirmed also by the Law of the Sea Convention itself um, in Article 18, Paragraph 2, which concerns the regime of the territorial sea and specifically the conditions for the exercise of the right of innocent passage, uh, where uh, uh, innocent passage, which is usually uh, continuous, uh, can actually uh, be interrupted. So there can be stopping or anchoring when it is to render assistance uh, to persons in need. Uh, so um, uh, the duty to render assistance as a circumstance precluding the responsibility of a foreign vessel for breaching the conditions of exercise of the right of innocent passage. And this confirms the application of the duty to render assistance in all the maritime zones, including the territorial sea. This is what we find in the Law of the Sea Convention, this enunciation of this core principle of uh, uh, Law of the Sea and Maritime Affairs. It is a principle which is way older uh, than uh, the Law of the Sea Convention. Actually, if some of you are interested, um, there are some historical work which has been done on it, and there are some uh, writings already uh, from uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome in which that principle was invoked already as applicable to all or in all uh, all seas and uh, for all vessels uh, in, involved in navigation. That principle, however, uh, it's as I said a general principle which applies to all vessels, and uh, it appears quite soon uh, that in order to have an efficient system of uh, rescue, then we needed also cooperation. And that emerged, uh, well, with the increase of navigation, 
uh, with the increase of the human presence at sea, where, of course, you have more instances of uh, distress or, um, or danger. Um, and uh, then also uh, with actually the uh, first um, migra migratory flows by sea. And indeed, uh, the search and rescue um, cooperation, so the search and rescue convention was adopted in 1979, um, which is uh, after years already of uh, uh, problems uh, concerning actually uh, instances of non-assistance uh, in the uh, Southeast uh, Asia uh, area along the coast of Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, which were where many people were trying uh, to uh, flee from those countries due to, on one hand, uh, the Vietnam War, and on the other hand, uh, the Khmer Rouge um, in Cambodia. And uh, in those, with those first uh, mass mass migration migratory flows uh, by sea, it became quite evident that there was a problem of coordination and cooperation. Because if everybody, all the states involved, and also the vessels, the merchant vessels, all agreed that there was this duty to render assistance, then uh, it was less clear what to do <laughs> with the persons uh, once they were uh, rescued, and uh, which of the states of the area uh, was the one in charge for coordinating eventually the operations and deciding uh, what would happen to those people rescued. So the SAR uh, convention, the search and rescue convention adopted in 1979 was really a cooperation convention. So to organize uh, a system of coordination and cooperation among states in order to guarantee a minimum level of effectivity to search and rescue services. And here I uh, put already the, uh, of course, the most recent version of this uh, convention, which shows how the system wants to organize also uh, the cooperation. And here uh, I focus on Article 3, uh, Paragraph 19, because the main issue that was already in the 70s and that we unfortunately already still have nowadays, and I'm sure if you have read the newspapers in the last years, you are all very familiar with it, is the issue of disembarkation. Uh, so again, what to do uh, with the, the, the people once they are uh, rescued? And here I don't use uh, on purpose the, the term migrant <laughs> because this system applies to everybody. So it is not the search and rescue convention and the SOLAS convention were not conventions adopted to hand, for handling migratory flows. Okay? But there were conventions created in order to enhance the safety of life at sea, to make sure that anyone who is in danger or in distress will receive some sort of assistance. Of course, no one pretends that states save 100% of the lives at sea. This is impossible, huh? let's be clear. But it was really to, the aim was to create a, a certain level of efficiency to strengthen the duty to render assistance through coordination and cooperation. 
And the main issue of contention was uh, what to do with the people rescued once they are rescued, in particular, if they are migrants, irregular migrants, or potential asylum seekers. Um, that issue emerged right away after the adoption of uh, the convention in 79. It was already one of the issues uh, around the coasts of uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. It continued to be an issue later on, also in the 90s and in the beginning 2000, as uh, many of you are aware, with many instances of uh, ports closing, uh, refusing the disembarkation of vessels which had just rescued irregular migrants in the Mediterranean or in the, ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean along the coast of the Canary Islands. So in 2004, uh, there uh, some amendments to the SAR and SOLAS convention, uh, conventions were adopted in order to hopefully clarify this division of labor between uh, the, the states involved. And uh, one obligation which was clarified is this obligation to coordinate and cooperate to ensure that masters of ships providing assistance uh, are released from their obligations with minimum further deviation from the ship's intended voyage. So the idea that states, even if the rescue um, actually was performed by a private vessel, which happens quite regularly, no? uh, then even in those instances, the states had the primary responsibility and should take over the uh, service which was performed by the private vessel. Moreover, uh, the uh, state party uh, in whose uh, search and rescue region the, uh, the operation took place would have the primary responsibility to ensure that coordination and cooperation. And that then on the basis is of that coordination and cooperation, uh, uh, the people will be delivered to a place of safety. In all cases, all the relevant parties shall arrange for such disembarkation to be effective as soon as reasonably practicable. So not only the search and rescue state, but all the relevant parties, which means eventually also other states which have been involved in the operation, but also um, the flag state of the vessel, the private vessel, for instance, which rescued uh, the people. So all the parties involved should be uh, cooperating and coordinating the, uh, first of all, the identification of the place of safety and then the um, disembarkation in a place of safety. Those amendments uh, actually uh, were adopted uh, with some debates, uh, in particular, uh, the, the, search, the coastal states, some coastal states thought that that would put too much uh, pressure and responsibility on coastal states with this primary obligation of the search and rescue uh, um, state. And indeed, in the Mediterranean context, uh, not all Mediterranean states have uh, indeed ratified uh, those um, um, amendments. And um, some of the key concepts uh, that are used in, and introduced by those amendments 
also uh, actually steered quite a bit of debate. And uh, notwithstanding the fact uh, that the IMO, uh, which was the international organization competent for those amendments, tried to uh, clarify those concepts as much as possible. The main concept which was debated and is still debated is, well, the place of safety. What is a place of safety? What are the uh, criteria for the determination of the place of safety? And um, generally, the, the threshold is that the place of safety is the place in which the rescue operations is considered completed. Uh, but what is safe and how do you, do, do you determine the safety? Is it enough that the, um, the livelihood, so the survival is guaranteed of the people or are there other guarantees uh, at an, maybe on an individual basis that should be taken into account when authorizing the disembarkation uh, on a specific uh, territory? And here, of course, uh, a very important uh, field of law which comes to interact with uh, the law of the sea and the search and rescue system is uh, refugee law, um, where there was a, a very uh, a tight cooperation between the UNHCR and the IMO, cooperation which was also um, actually existing prior uh, the amendments of 2004. Already in the 70s and in the 80s, the two organizations had uh, closely cooperated uh, for the management of uh, uh, actually migratory flows by sea and uh, they together you have now uh, a 2015 uh, version of this uh, uh, principles where uh, uh, the some criteria deriving from refugee law and human rights are indicated uh, to help the states and to help the shipmasters uh, to actually uh, identify the place of safety. But notwithstanding that, uh, the issue of disembarkation continued, and still is, <laughs> a, a big hot issue, and it was discussed again in 2009, uh, so uh, only uh, five years after uh, the, um, the, the, the adoption of the amendment, and it continues to be discussed uh, within the, uh, the, the, the IMO and uh, in generally uh, within this uh, system. This is to give you a bit of an introduction of the main instruments and the core obligations uh, stemming from uh, those, uh, those uh, instruments. And now I would like just to focus more precisely on the concept of jurisdiction, which is really key here, because of course, if we are talking about the recognition of a right, uh, we need to make sure that there is exercise of jurisdiction by a state which will guarantee <laughs> the, that right and which will have uh, uh, eventually uh, uh, some responsibility if that right is not is breached, uh, so that, that that right is not complied with. The difficulty in assessing the exercise of jurisdiction in search and rescue in the search and rescue context uh, is that actually um, search and rescue regions, search and rescue zones are not sovereignty zones. So it is not like in the territorial sea where you have a presumption of exercise of jurisdiction of the coastal state. Okay, It is a purely functional zone which is created 
for the state to perform search and rescue services and to coordinate search and rescue operations which might happen in that area, maybe performed by someone else. And the fact that it's not a sovereignty zone, this is clearly also confirmed by the SAR Convention itself, which says that the delimitation of search and rescue regions is not related to and shall not prejudice the delimitation of any boundary between states. So it has nothing to do with uh, normal territorial delimitation. Um, and I, I like to say that it is a zone of obligations and of no rights. So it is a zone in which the state actually commits to a series of obligations uh, deriving from the duty to render assistance and the search and rescue convention. It commits to coordinate, it commits to cooperate, it commits to guarantee uh, a minimum level of uh, uh, effectivity to the search and rescue services, but it actually does not get any right back. Uh, it's not an, a region that gives the state more uh, rights to exercise any other type of activity or the legitimate uses of, of the sea. Um, it is those uh, functional prescriptive and enforcement jurisdiction. Uh, the state indeed has both and prescriptive and enforcement because it can regulate the way in which the search and rescue services will take place in the search and rescue area. Okay? And it has enforcement jurisdiction because it can intervene and organize and act, uh, but it is functional to the conduct of the duty to render assistance. And that's it, and the search and rescue services. And so I, I like to use the concept of deterritorialization of the jurisdiction in that context because it has nothing to do with the territory. <laughs> so it is indeed a, a, a functional exercise of the jurisdiction, um, which, is as, which has no connection whatsoever uh, between the, uh, the exercise of the activity and a specific territory. Uh, it is a voluntary commitment to exercise uh, the um, the specific uh, uh, activity, even though, of course, the delimitation of the search and rescue uh, zone has a territorial, a geographical element, which is that usually states have their SAR zone close to their coasts. But I, I will show in a moment a map where you see that some uh, states have very wide uh, search and rescue zones, which are not not anymore that adjacency connection um, and, and geographical connection. So the type of jurisdiction that it is recognized to those states in those areas is not connected to the territory, to the sovereignty exercise on the territory, because it is not a sovereignty zone. It is a purely functional zone. And this is uh, a map that maybe some of you are quite familiar to. This is how the oceans are kind of divided in, uh, in uh, search and rescue areas to guarantee the safety of navigation around the globe. And uh, ooh, what happened? Sorry. Do you, uh, is it still sharing? Yes. Okay. So it's only me. Sorry. <laughs> what did I do? I cannot see anymore the... Is it going on? Has it moved? 
No. Okay. Sorry. I see Natasha. What did I do? You can currently see the map as oh, yes. Here we go. I I'm sorry. I have too many windows, I think, open. I find it again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so um no. Ah. Okay. I, I think I know what is happening. Uh, I'll uh, okay here here we go uh, so <laughs> here um, so this is a, a, a zoom in in the Mediterranean context and you see uh, also uh, in confirmation to a certain extent the fact that these are not sovereignty zones um, search and rescue zones can also overlap and there is no actually um, international rule uh, prohibiting the overlap of those zones. This can create, of course, problems from a practical point of view, because if you have two overlapping search and rescue zones, then there might be a, a, a doubt on who is the state responsible at a certain moment and who is supposed to coordinate um, an, an operation which is happening in that overlapping area. Uh, but from a legal point of view, that is completely uh, possible. Huh? And this is in confirmation of the fact that those are not territorial zones, but purely uh, functional zones. So how can, in that context, be, uh, can, how can a jurisdiction be exercised uh, by a state? And here, I, I like to look at different factual scenarios which are also, of course, relying on real factual scenarios, unfortunately, uh, that have happened over the years. So a classic, simple factual scenario is, well, one, uh, the uh, rescue operation uh, is ended actually by uh, um, taking on board the rescue people, uh, so on board of a, a state vessel, be it the Coast Guard, for instance, or the Navy, um, then there is a clear jurisdictional link on the basis of the law of the sea, exclusive jurisdiction of the flag state on the basis of Article 92 of the law of the sea convention, and thus any person on board of a vessel is submitted to the exclusive jurisdiction of that state. And that was confirmed uh, by the European Court of Human Rights in the ERC case, again involving Italy, uh, a decision of 2012 uh, in which um, a unit of the Italian Navy took on board indeed uh, a group of uh, migrants and that was considered uh, responsible uh, for the breach of uh, the principle of non refoulement, uh, also because then it disembarked the people in uh, Libya. So, But this is the kind of easy factual scenario because the people are on board, we have a clear jurisdictional link, and everything is more or less clear, let's say, um, then, of course, there can be different circumstances that might uh, be debatable. Uh, what happens in instances of uh, non-rescue or mismanagement, which is exactly what happened in the uh, case that was uh, examined by the Human Rights Committee. So we do not have the people taken on board, but at the same time, we have a series of um, interactions or communications between the people in distress and the authorities which are involved in the area and uh, or more, more specifically in beginning and coordinating the uh, search and rescue operation. So if there is a distress call, 
if there is a distress call, uh, well, on the basis of the search and rescue convention, also how um, on the basis of the, the amendments of uh, uh, 2004, the, if the distress call happens within the uh, search and rescue region, then the state of that search and rescue region will have primary responsibility to coordinate, cooperate and coordinate. So first of all, to actually perform the operation and then to find a place of safety. Um, that uh, jurisdiction or that, that those obligations are not, uh, they, they do not imply that the state itself is supposed to perform the operation. Huh? But again, the obligation is to cooperate and coordinate. Where is the jurisdictional link here? What I have argued in some of my uh, writings previously is that from the moment in which there is a distress call uh, from, the, uh, from the people in distress, uh, the people in distress actually fall within the uh, control of the state which receives the distress call because their survival actually is dependent on how the state will react to the distress call and how it will coordinate uh, the, uh, the operations. So there is a sort of uh, long distance uh, effective control where the decisions taken by the state which receives the distress call will directly impact actually what will happen to those people. And it's not uh, something uh, speculative because if a state does not react to a distress call with, well, almost 100% probability, the people will not be saved. Mm -hmm. So there is a clear uh, chain of uh, uh, causation here between what will happen uh, to the people who sent the distress call and the state which received the distress call and the way in which the state will react to that. And this is uh, included in the due diligence obligation, which stems from the duty to render assistance, in particular how uh, specified in the 2004 amendments to the SOLAS and the SAR uh, conventions. What happens if the uh, distress call is sent from outside the search and rescue region of the state? There it is unclear because actually um, the, the convention does not specify what type of due diligence obligation the states should have in those cases. Uh, what we have is that this general obligation, but with a should, as you can see from the text, which says state parties should arrange that their search and rescue services are able to give prompt response to distress calls without any um, geographical limitation. So here it doesn't say that the distress call should be launched from within the search and rescue region or not. So this obligation applies also to uh, distress calls launched from outside the search and rescue region of a state. But this should of course, kind of diminish the uh, content of the due diligence obligation that otherwise we have when the same thing happens to, within the uh, search and rescue region. And so there, um, 
there is indeed a, a, a question mark on whether there is such a clear um, jurisdictional link between the people who launched the, the distress call or not, because uh, they might also uh, be within the search and rescue area of another state, which would then have primary responsibility on the basis of the search and rescue um, of the search and rescue uh, conventions. However, um, the Human Rights Committee in its decisions, because this is exactly actually the factual scenario which had to be examined by uh, the, uh, the committee, said that there is a special relationship of dependency which has been established between the individuals which sent the distress call and the state which received it. In this case, the distress call was launched from the search and rescue zone of Malta. And so Italy was invoking that Malta was the primary responsible. Here, what the, the, the committee said, uh, that without entering then into the possible responsibility of Malta also for the mismanagement of all that, but what the committee said is that, yes, maybe Malta had primary responsibility, but this does not exclude the fact that there was already a connection with you who received the distress call. Which means that not that uh, Italy per se had necessarily to go, uh, <laughs> uh, but which means that you need to do something your due diligence obligations are triggered by that distress call and you have at least to make sure that there is someone doing something. So you have those cooperation obligations which are triggered by, by this distress call. And you have a sort of long distance effective control because the people are dependent on your behavior, on your reaction to the distress call. How does that impact the application of uh, uh, human rights and specifically of uh, the right to life uh, at sea? Why the right to life? Um, well, the right to life mainly because it is the one uh, closest <laughs> to the principle of the safety of life at sea, uh, which is a customary principle. Uh, again, a very old uh, principle of uh, law of the sea and uh, maritime law. Um, and also because the right to life is the right which also guarantees the uh, conduct of uh, emergency services hmm, in case of incident, which imposes on the state um, uh, um, positive obligations to make sure that the people under their uh, under its jurisdiction is safe, also in cases of incident, also in cases of emergency. Um, the European Court of Human Rights has developed over the years a, a quite uh, established case law on risk management and how states can be found in breach of the right to life when they know or had or how to have known that there was a real immediate risk to life in a part of uh, territory in uh, which is under it or in a factual situation which is under their jurisdiction. 
This has been also uh, discussed in relation to emergency services uh, in a case of uh, 2008, saying that, again, uh, also in the way in which a state uh, organizes uh, emergency services, so the, the possibility to reach uh, situations of incident and emergency, that is part of uh, uh, the due diligence obligations of the state to guarantee the right to life. And this reasoning we find also in the committee decision of uh, last month, uh, where the committee recalls how the right to life includes an obligation for states to adopt any appropriate laws and other measures in order to protect life from all reasonable foreseeable threats. And that the due diligence uh, require taking reasonable positive measures that do not impose disproportionate burdens, of course, on states. So the fact of organizing also services. And why is it relevant here? Because the Mediterranean route for migrants, instances of um, distress in those areas are actually quite well known. They are also foreseeable. They are not new. The states involved in the coastal states know that those are migratory routes. So you know that some instances of distress will happen at certain points. So, and that kind of enhances your due diligence obligation. If you know that a part of your territory or of an area which is under your control uh, uh, should be, uh, well, in that area, there might be instances of emergency, you are supposed to prepare yourself Again, you cannot prevent all incidents. You cannot prevent the loss of lives 100%. But you have to be ready in the way in which you react to it. And this is exactly what uh, Italy failed to do. It took too long to respond to the distress call. It mismanaged the coordination of the units which were in the area. It took too long to communicate with Malta and so on. And that's what was um then thought as a breach of the right to life uh, in in this case so to conclude um as i said i think this case is interesting because it finally recognized that there is a right to be rescued at sea um and contrary to the dissenting members of the committee uh, i think it has a series of advantages this approach uh, the, this functional approach adopted by uh, the committee first of all it clarifies the jurisdictional link between the individuals in distress or lost at sea and the states involved in the operation and not only the state in whose search and rescue area uh, the um, the distress call was launched, but also all other states which might be involved from the uh, flag state of the vessel, of the private vessel intervening, to the other uh, vessels, state vessels, which might give some support uh, to, the, to the operation. It also clarifies the, con the content of the duty to render assistance. It uh, details the due diligence obligations of the states involved and and not only 
And in particular, it makes clear that yes, the coastal state might have a primary obligation, but it's not an exclusive uh, responsibility, uh, which has already been, which was in a way already clear from the search and rescue convention, but which has been debated quite extensively by the states. And this is this clarifies huh? it. It's like, well, yes, the SAR state will have its own responsibility, but you still have a responsibility. You still have an obligation of due diligence. You are not excused by the primary responsibility of the coastal state. And it also uh, clarifies how effective control can be construed in relation to obligations of conduct in areas which are not directly submitted to the territorial jurisdiction of the state, so which are deterritorialized. And lastly, I think that it doesn't disrupt uh, the legal order created by the SOLAS and the SAR conventions, but actually it clarifies and strengthens it, uh, because it, I think also for the states involved, it makes clearer what they are supposed to do and when maybe they well it makes clear that they have to do more <laughs> that's for sure uh, but it is still a, a welcome outcome i think thank you very much for your attention and i give back the floor to our conveners